0: special edition of Making It Up today.
1: It's very exciting. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Maken, which is original storytelling at its purest. Through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
0: Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in.
1: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
0: If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on Make on Patreon.com slash Macon. Those three hours of sleep are starting to come through.
1: Just a heads up, before we get going, Bezot is calling in remotely from San Francisco. So if there is any audio quality issues, that would be why. And without further ado, let's get into it. We did not prep an intro,
0: Eugene. We did not.
1: Handing it over to you.
0: Introduce our guest. One thing that we've been interested in doing is trying to make things a little bit more dynamic. And it's not because things are stale so much as that there's so much interesting dialogue that happens within the making community that we wanted to bring some of our members into the mix.
1: Yeah, I meant, do you want to give an introduction of the actual person?
0: Well, no, I was going to get to that, which is why. Bazod's like, wait, this is the shit that goes on right now. This is, <laughs> this is how the sausage is made. But yeah, our guest is a really close friend of ours who, to be honest, we haven't really known that long, but we've just really connected ever since he had like a half day layover in Hong Kong. So yeah, without further ado, we are going to introduce Bezod, who this is always the part where I hate introducing people because there's so much like identity tied with what people do. But I, what, the question I like to ask people is, Bezod, what do you think people think you do? And do you think that aligns with you, what you personally see yourself as?
1: Eugene is the only person who can turn what should be a straightforward introduction into like a philosophical segment. So I'm going to do the job that I thought Eugene was Wait, going what? to do. What Bayzad was okay, most recently the head of operations for research and analytics at Slack, where he supported a team people. maybe he doesn't want to be
0: put in that bucket. I don't know.
1: Okay, well, I'll say what I think the introduction yeah. is, and then he can correct me. Okay. But then Bezod. most recently, he's left Slack, and he's started his own thing called Yet Another Studio, which is an independent research practice. And I really like this phrase that he uses to talk about Yet Another Studio, which is that he helps people bring more rigor to their curiosity. All right, now, Bayzad, if you don't like the bucket that Eugene and I have you know, set up around you, correct us.
2: I don't mind. Any of the buckets, Sharice. That was a great introduction. Eugene, of course, asking the philosophical questions, which I I think, fortunately for me, are maybe not far off from the truth. Like I, I think a lot of folks who've come across me in some professional context think that I do research in some capacity, and I think that's more or less true. I think that the big thing now is that I'm on my own. I'm less involved in actually doing research and i'm not sort of an independent researcher in the same way that a lot of folks who practice this are where i'm not the person you're going to hire to come in and do a research project for you i'm much more of a kind of coach or architect or strategist that's helping people do research better whether that's you know build a research team and, and grow a research practice in your company or even just like have the the research muscle built on your own to not ask biased questions or be a better interviewer
1: that's great nice.
0: prior to meeting bezod i'd never thought of researcher as a job outside the realm of academia really that makes sense like i never wait
1: you didn't thought... know that researcher was, was a job until you met bezod
0: no like in terms of outside of like uh educational institutions like i always oh. thought that that was tied with like school versus hey you're a researcher at a company, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I actually think that's, that's part of like what's fun about, I mean, my, my work. I think there's a lot of folks who, if you haven't been in tech or in like an agency where you have sort of a dedicated researcher or research practice, it's kind of strange. You're like, wait a minute, everyone does research as part of their work. What do you mean you just do, re-? like why? Which uh, honestly is like why I was able to step away and build the studio because there are so many folks who are curious as part of their job and they're just curious in unstructured, unrigorous, or like harmful ways. And I want to yeah. fix that.
1: Yeah, because I was about to say, I mean, maybe I judged Eugene a little bit quickly, but I think research is in a lot of what anyone does in their jobs, even if that's not like your sole job title of researcher, like research is a fun is a a section of what you do. But also I guess it's cause I've Worked within, like you said, agencies and tech companies more than Eugene has. So,
2: and I think Eugene just did yeah. so much research. He got out researched while he was at Hypebeast, and he was like, "I don't want any more stimuli. Please stop sending me cold emails of your Fit Pics."
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think Eugene would call any of that stuff research
0: that he did. I don't know, Eugene. I think one of the reasons why Bezo and I get along quite well is like I think there is like this shared interest in research, although I would not call it research. Like for me, it's just looking up information, right? I'm interested in information and knowledge, but I guess you could contextualize that as research slash researcher. It's
1: just language. On the opposite spectrum of research, we have something really fun to chat about to start off with. (laughs) Eugene did do his research on this. Great. We gave Eugene homework. Bezot and I have both done a couple of Chloe Ting workouts. Bezot, I think, has done more than me at this point. I've just done two, accompanying my sister over the last, like, two I want months. you guys
0: to explain how you guys came across Chloe Ting. I know she's massive, like, relative terms. She's pretty big. But, like, how did you guys find out about her workouts? And why has she been seen as an authority on home workouts? And someone that you think will allow you to achieve some sort of fitness goal
1: my sister suddenly started like pulling out the exercise mat at home one day and i was like what are you doing and she was like oh me and these two girlfriends decided we were going to do a two-week chloe ting challenge and i said who and what is chloe ting (laughs) at which point i just watched her do the workout and i was like wow and then like the next day or a day after i did one with her but that was, that was my entire introduction. I had not heard of Chloe Ting before that moment. Um, Beza, do you want to say how you got introduced?
2: I, I think that was kind of similar. I mean, I guess maybe for, for background, like my girlfriend and I are both pretty active and we end up doing active things together. And so we actually, um, er, early on in us dating, she sort of invited me to go to Barry's boot camp with her. I think thinking that I was going to say no, not realizing that that was something I was super down for so so we we like regularly run together she's getting into cycling and and like just got a bike um and i think in in the shelter in place at least in san francisco we'd explore different things to do in the apartment and at one point we were actually doing berries at home with other folks from from slack because we had trainers that we really liked i want to say like three or four weeks ago she was just like hey do you want to do this chloe ting workout with me and i was like what is that She was like oh it's like berries (laughs) well, we have like weights and bands and stuff like that. She's like, let's just try it. Someone had introduced it to it and we did it and it was fun. And it's become like a transition from the work day to the the evening now where like we finish work and it's like, okay, you know, do some Chloe team videos and then
0: whatever. I mean, I'm coming from a different perspective, right? In terms of fitness and whatnot. And I also came across in my research, some, other, I don't know. Call them like quasi influencer, but just someone. I don't know if they're influencer or not, but basically someone that was like a fitness um coach and just basically ripping her apart. Not because not a character defamation thing, but more so like this in terms of the programming is not necessarily how you would approach achieving your goals. Because I think a lot of it comes down to like to oh, yeah. challenge to oh, do yeah. this, but. I think I think there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that she's not revealing in terms of how much diet comes into it, and this is anecdotally uh, since Hong Kong went kind of on quasi lockdown no gyms, nothing no 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 sorting sporting activities. I've actually lost like weight and it's been a lot easier just because the diet has been uh under much more rigorous control and I don't know how much she talks about that, but I was looking at her her workouts and they're not really intense, but I would also asterisk that, but that's just me looking at it and thinking like from a from a technical yeah. side, like they seem really half assed. Yeah. So that makes sense. Like you yourself could increase by doing the full range of motion, but it seems as though it's going through the motion and doing the motion with the least effort possible to draw it out. So like, Hey, I worked out for 12 minutes. This is
1: my main beef actually with Chloe Ting is actually, so I know there's criticism of her in terms of like the way she markets herself as being very like externally body focused, like, you know, getting a big booty, getting lean arms, you know, abs. So very focused on sort of external appearances rather than actual fitness. But my main beef with her is actually that I think the video instructions, and maybe it's because of me, I don't know, is is unclear. Like, I find her very confusing in terms of, like, teaching actions. And I find the timing to be, like, super rushed. And maybe I get, I don't, I've never done berries. Maybe no, it's, it's similar to, like, it, the berries pacing.
2: I have the same criticism with berries that I do about Chloe workouts, which is none of them teach form. And so yeah. if if you're not an athlete or someone who has a reasonable amount of flexibility and understanding of how to move, you will hurt yourself much quicker than you will get stronger. And yeah. I, I've seen that with lots of folks who showed up at berries. But if you know what you're doing, it's almost just like having someone kind of nudge you and be like, oh, 40 seconds of crunches, 40 seconds of squats. And you're just like, yeah, OK, I can do this. And she's basically a timer and like a flip book of activities.
1: Oh, yeah. She's basically like a timer. The, that's really what her videos are. It's like a, running a timer.
2: Now we're getting into fit. In, we are probably talk about this for a long time, but the, the thing that I yeah. view it as is the idea of like a fitness snack from Joe Holder. I think he's Ocho System on Instagram. He's like a Nike master trainer and he's affiliated with Whoop, yeah, And, and yeah. he trains like um, Naomi Campbell and a bunch of, I think he trains Virgil. But he, he has this idea of like, You know, you want to build moments of movement into your day. And in many ways, like a 10 minute ad video is not going to build like a sustainable core or like core strength. But it is a really good like moment of, for me, a break from sitting at my desk and like I'm getting up, I'm doing something, i am now moved. And it's an addition to riding and running and lifting and like other things that I'm doing. But yeah, Yeah. you're not going to do Chloe Ting and get strong.
0: Do you think that it's a bit disingenuous that she sells this when in reality there might be arguably an easier way of achieving a certain fitness or like I guess outward appearance goal because that's that was my thing it's like yeah I mean I'm not I'm by no means uh certified trainer or anything but I do have a certain baseline around physiology and nutrition and all that stuff and honestly like these half-ass workouts like they might they might sell you a certain sort of internal fuzzy feeling but they're they seem mostly again it is
1: it is really uh like based said about what kind of fitness routine you already had like what sort of foundation you had because for people who have done other types of fitness activity and you've worked with a trainer before or some type then Chloe Ting is totally fine to like do those workouts, I think. But if this is like your introduction to exercise, and especially I guess if you're like a younger <laughs> person who really wants that like Chloe Ting body, then I you could argue that is disingenuous mm-hmm. or even dangerous because they might yeah. aspirationally want like that booty and those thighs and not be able to get it by doing these workouts yeah. so.
0: Well, I guess the question also, you you also wonder, is there other things she's doing outside of her workouts that are allowing her to achieve that sort of physique? Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm sure diet
0: and sleep. But also, is it resistance Because a lot of stuff isn't really resistance training. She's not really lifting weights, right? It's more about aerobic she, stuff. She has
2: bands and weights in some of the workouts. But yeah, I mean, I,
0: uh, I don't know if, okay.
2: what your experience was with, with football, like teams and training. But I know that when when I was playing ice hockey, we would have kind of dry, late, dry days and, and ice days. And yeah, yeah. when we were doing training on dry days, like the, the two things I always learned was you go from big muscles to small muscles and you go from systems to individual muscles. So you're, you're doing like sort of groups of movement before you would actually work an individual thing. And it, I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's true, but like that was what I learned for 10 years from you know, one group of hockey. And it's always interesting going Mm -hmm. to Barry's or like watching this and just trying to understand or unpack why certain movements are chosen and why they're ordered in that way. Where it's like, in my head, I'm always kind of like, okay, you you go from bigger muscles to smaller muscles, and then you work sort of the vanity muscles, which, you know, just look nice, but maybe aren't actually about strength. And I I can't detect that logic in these workouts.
0: Should we jump into today's topics? Right. Bezod, you're the guest things off
2: awesome my selection for this episode is an essay called the reductive seduction of other people's problems written by courtney martin in january of 2016 and the sort of byline to the piece says if you're young privileged and interested in creating a life of meaning of course you'd be attracted to solving problems that seem urgent and readily solvable sort of overall thesis of the piece was for people who are looking at sort of domestic issues so if i'm in the united states and i'm looking at an issue like gun violence i can readily accept that there is a lot of complexity to the issue of gun violence in the united states there are certain laws and policies there's historical perspective there are lobbies and money being exchanged and i i as a citizen can embrace and sort of acknowledge that that exists but very often I, can, I will look at foreign problems, things like hunger in a foreign country or water issues. And I project a simplicity onto that where I'm like, oh, I could just go there and do this one thing and poof, that problem would be solved. And in doing so, I'm sort of rejecting the same complexity that exists in those other countries, given their cultural histories, laws, like everything that would be similar. Um, I think we talk about this a lot in terms of like the white savior complex of like, oh, I'll just go over there and do this thing and like prove the problem is gone.
0: When you say white savior complex, do you think that this inherently is an American savior complex? Because it seems as though that was the repositioning of this piece. And maybe... For those unfamiliar with the white savior complex, maybe you can even explain in maybe a few words what that means.
2: My understanding is sort of the idea that we have uh, privileged Americans often who are white that look at people who are different than them very often in countries in the continent of Africa or somewhere in South America and believe that they can use their privilege to go and address issues of justice, inequality, hunger, etc., in those countries, and that doing so is is quite simple and straightforward. And it might be like, oh, these people don't have water. We just need to build a well. Um and that sort of like there's a I don't know if it's a stage of life or a generation or a group of people, but there's there's a an entire perspective that is held or a set of beliefs by a, a group of people for the most part in America, that that is one way to fix these kinds of issues. I do think to your point that, that the article actually was being very pointed in saying there is an entire group of Americans that, you know, while we try to go international to solve these problems, we're ignoring the domestic issues that we have that look the same. And we ignore them because they're from people who look like us. And so, part of what's enticing about solving these problems abroad is that they're exotic Um, problems—not to to pull from an author whose name I can't pronounce, Cz Nameka—unexotic problems.
1: Thanks for the overview. Why is this interesting to you right now? It's really
2: stuck out to me because I think when I was thinking about conversations with the two of you and just sort of what. Macon represents to me, I think it's the idea of wrangling with and embracing complexity is very top of mind. And I think what's been interesting, you know, in, in the short-ish, I don't know, two-ish years that I've known y'all, like we've experienced a lot of complexity that we've had to turn or we, we've turned to each other to unpack. So there's been lots of things going on in Hong Kong that have been hard for me i think to understand as someone who lives stateside there's things that are going on in the states that obviously y'all have a perspective on from being here or being in north america but like we've had to unpack in different ways um and so i was really interested to just like both think about this as something that i think both of you would enjoy talking about but it's something that's been part of your own lived experiences in different ways and is now, I think, a part of all three of our professional experiences in that we are regularly exploring and kind of diving into the complexity of other people's problems, knowingly or or unknowingly.
0: If you were to revisit this same positioning in a year's time, that in actuality, I think, with every month, it seems as though this position has less and less credibility. Only because, and I'm once again focusing on uh, the American connection to it, I think that the. The amount of problems that are happening within the U.S. actually are pulling so much attention domestically that this "quote unquote" American savior complex has less room to operate. Oh, the the fire in your in your backyard is like there's it's almost the point now where I mean in some ways it is kind of out of control. Like you no longer really can look to other places in times of prosperity. Sure, like everything's fine and dandy at home, but that's where you're You're not forced, but you. that's where you're looking elsewhere for things to impact.
1: I get what Eugene is saying. And the caveat here is that you neither Eugene nor I are located in the States, right? So in a way, actually, we're talking about the complexity of other people's problems and possibly reducing them because we're not located there. But I would think that the mentality that Courtney Martin is describing in her piece still exists so long as there is like another place like further out from you than your backyard literally like your your block your neighborhood and even within the states which is a very large country it could still happen that you know the the problem is in georgia the problem is in florida it's not here like in my neighborhood you know i think it's still there is the appeal to see as i could solve that problem over there and like overlook being engaged with exactly where you are and i think that could happen for us in hong kong too to just like it interrogate ourselves that we we might not see you know new territories east or like south islands so
0: this in essence is a relative thing where it's not it's more so you're you're looking to solve problems close to home how to put this i'm i'm trying to come to terms with what you mentioned about like within your same sort of like region but it not being a compelling enough reason to address them. You know, as someone living on the West coast, would they go and try to impact something that's happening in Florida, for example, or would they deem that to be too similar and too much in the same vein? Yeah. And they'd rather look
2: I mean, externally? I think the answer to your original question is yes, people are having less and less space to operate because I think that the conversations that are happening, so I would argue that this historically is like a very privileged upper class thing. Like most people in the country grow up facing some sort of aspect or side of these issues where they understand the connection between things. They understand how, things like a credit score or things like a, a job can affect your credit, which can affect your housing, which can like, and they understand sort of the connection between these things. And so you have people who are typically sheltered and more privileged who project that simplicity elsewhere. And I would like to think that the attention that's been given to the things that are going on in the wake of George Floyd's murder or Breonna Taylor's murder is helping to raise the awareness of the interconnectedness between these things. And that something like you know, police violence actually has not only a, an incredibly problematic history, but a, an incredible amount of systems that are preserving and perpetuating it in ways that we all have to be aware of. And, and there isn't, even for things that we think are simple, like police shouldn't kill citizens, like there's actually an immense amount of complexity there, and so um. I'm hopeful that this the people become more and more aware of the complexity all around them, both domestically and internationally.
1: Yeah. But I think it makes sense that, um, yeah. what this article terms reductive seduction is attractive because, like, we've been talking a lot about complexity, and Besad, you opened by saying that like our conversations between the three of us tend to dive into complex subjects and all of the interconnectedness of things but i think we had to train ourselves to want that and to appreciate that and actually it's really human to want a very simple answer and so we gravitate towards things that just look easy and and maybe
2: this actually connects back to Eugene's favorite workout videos that we just talked about where in some ways it's actually the perceived yeah. simplicity to achieve an outcome that is really attractive. And, you know, running a marathon looks hard and is hard. Doing a Chloe Ting workout looks easy and is easy. And in your mind, you're believing that you're going to achieve a similar outcome. People are not like actively excited about, you know, it it takes a certain person to be excited about training for a marathon. I bet Chloe Ting's audience is much bigger than that. That
1: was a really good connection. way to make our Chloe Ting conversation relevant. Something I'm really interested in, like when you share this article with us, you you said that you think it's also related to what you do as a job and in your work experiences.
2: I think I wrote notes about this, too, because I didn't want to totally butcher this. But one of the things that was interesting especially when I worked at Facebook and I was a part of the orientation and onboarding for people who came in on design roles, whether it was design or research content strategy, et cetera, was I talked about how very often in, in research, we don't ask people to design a solution for us, or if we're going to ask them, like, how would you solve this problem? It's only to understand why that's their perception, because most people from the outside of a company only understand like 1% of what a company is capable of or prioritizing or is interested, et cetera. And I think it's interesting and I I wanted to hear y'all's perspective on this, but one of the challenges in my work is people come to me because I've solved problems in specific ways and they believe that I can do that kind of thing for them. And I have to be confident that the way that I solved problems in the past, I've abstracted learnings from and could try to translate those learnings to new situations and problems. But I also have to recognize that there are a lot of differences in the way that an organization actually functions, than I can see from the outside. And so I have to be ready not to just show up and deliver a solution, but to like dive into the complexity of their problem and just embrace that with all of its thorns and
0: messiness. I'm, I'm a firm believer that problem solving in itself has a process and a, a model around it that is super flexible. If you allow it to be flexible, meaning you, If I'm at point A, I need to go to point B, it looks different. It might be, you know, zigzag, but that process in general is still going forward. And the fact that you admit that I need to understand certain complexities, I still think you can atomize it into core components that allow you to make this a repeatable process, which is why you're technically a business, right? You can run an agency because you have a formula not necessarily formula in in the most sort of productized sense but you have a way to achieve it
2: yeah i think i would i would twist on that a little bit and say that like you know maybe it's atomic or maybe it's you know i have i've used certain tools in the past and what i have to be confident in is that i have a much broader toolkit than just the tools i used for any specific project before because i will have to bring in those tools at different points and the way that i built something. From a set of materials at one company or with one team is not going to be the same way that I can necessarily build the same thing somewhere else. I mean, I can
1: definitely identify with the. uh, With that mindset of thinking that, you know, the solution Mm -hmm. in advance, because oftentimes, like back when I was doing a lot more different types of freelance projects, I would get a client who would briefly outline their problem, like speak to them on the phone. And honestly, like I would hang up on that phone and be like, okay, this is like, it's package A, you know, or it's package C or whatever it is, you know? And on one hand though, as a business person, as a freelancer, like sometimes, this is a terrible thing to say, but sometimes you need those breaks. Like you need to have some like off the shelf solutions because not every project can be like a, you know, reconsideration of everything. but by delivering those like you yourself as an individual you don't benefit right because you don't learn anything new and also ultimately you do you do a disservice to your client because you're not truly understanding you know all the dimensions of their problem however there is like a time and place for relying on your past experiences
2: it is that balance right like you're you're hired for what you've done and what you're capable of yeah and, and then there's this question of like how different is the next thing from the last
1: one.
2: And should like to your point, when should it be different versus, oh, we've solved this problem. Like
1: And you kind of alluded to this, but there are sometimes clients who will just ask you for the solution you've already provided. They'll say like, hey, I know that you did X for Z. Like we would like X too. So can you just like make X, you know, slightly different, but for us? And it's like, well, that's not really that's not my skill set actually. I, I'm
2: interested in sort of the way that y'all are approaching Adam's studios, given some of your like kind of ongoing client relationships and how you think about like, you know, of the broad toolkit that you bring to strategy and direction, like how are you choosing, how much different is it from what you think you're going to deliver and do versus like what actually happens?
0: Over the course of that process of both vetting clients, understanding their positioning, even their subtle cues. Like the one thing that we, we joke about is sometimes they'll take a meeting and be like, they have no idea what the fuck they want. Like honestly, they they're like in it, they know they need help, but they don't even know where to start. So you have to understand, am I going to go in there and help them understand what they want to do relative to the budget? There's a lot of like obviously variables that come into play. And where is that intersection point where this feels right? And when I look at that, like, as you go through the process and you understand that it's basically a bunch of variables coming together, and with relative accuracy, as you do it enough, you might get 10 of 10 variables, right? But there's always room for error, right? So, I would say that in general, things that are out of your control might represent anywhere from five to, you know, 10 variables that. You don't know what's going to happen, but obviously you try to minimize that through planning, through understanding the outcome, managing the client to reduce the things that are out of your control. And I think that is essentially what agency slash creative work is. I say creative as like a creative in terms of a a self title, right? Oh, I'm a creative, not I'm creating creative work. Uh, but I that that's exactly what it is. It's like you're, you're in the business of offering creative solutions in a way that is Kind of, you, you kind of have to draw the parameters and the parameters are, are something you draw up with the client.
2: I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I actually think the point that you made, which is maybe something that we all take for granted at this point to, to Charisse's comment earlier, is like part of what we like about our work and part of just something we enjoy in general is that discovery process and sort of understanding what are the parameters and what are the variables? And I think for me, part of that process is understanding like, is this a problem I'm excited about? And I think you probably do that in the studio through some of those initial calls of like, what is it they want? Are we excited about doing that? Is that something we can provide? And like that in our own ways is sort of the like complexity measurement of like, okay, what does this look like? Is this gonna be fun? Can I do this?
0: cool i had a conversation with someone because especially in a startup phase of a studio or a creative agency you you need to take on shit you don't really want to do and i think that's just the reality of any business there's going to be things that you have to do and concessions you need to make that allow you to get to the next level and without sort of that foundation and primarily to be honest in the very early stages foundation is both financial and portfolio Right, And once you have those two, you can start to decide where you want to go. Because I had a discussion with some friends that are starting a studio as well, and they're like, yeah, we want to be a a creative agency and studio that focuses on companies that are doing things that are environmentally sustainable and good for health and wellness. But on the flip side, they don't have any work that represents that. So how do you pitch to a client that might be in that space that you can do it when none of your portfolio work represents that? So it also comes down to the client management part where despite the fact you might not have a one-to-one representation of what they've done before or what they want to do, you have the capabilities of doing it, which is in some ways what you've proven out, right? Because people come to you to solve problems for them, even though their problem is probably in some ways unique, but maybe there's a pretty strong overlap. It's the 50% that will be unique to their their challenges
2: i think that's true i think we're getting into this part of the article that i i liked towards the end where martin says i understand the attraction of working outside the u.s there's no question that the scale and severity of need in so many countries goes far beyond anything we experience or witness stateside but don't go because you've fallen in love with solvability go because you've fallen in love with complexity don't go because you want to do something virtuous, go because you want to do something difficult. Don't go because you want to talk, go because you want to listen. And I, I think that, you know, the, the point about choosing that work is like, that part I think spoke to me of, you know, maybe not initially you get to do those things, but you work up to the point where you really are going, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And you like that struggle or that challenge or that, Insert your yeah word something
1: here. we didn't really talk about, but that's also in her article is she was saying how people mm. are also attracted to well, maybe not so much now, like four years since this article was written, but people were attracted to like this quotation marks like exotic nature of like going overseas and like the the external appearance of looking like you're solving this really important problem, like you're part of this humanitarian aid and just thinking about that, like in the business context, I think it's the appeal of looking really smart, like you can really easily present like what you know is going to like or what you think is like a solution that knocks it out of the park. But learning to love you know, what you've just read, learning to love with, with complexity, doing difficult things and listening, like often you look dumb or if not dumb, you look like you don't know yet what you're doing which is actually the truth right like i mean making it up like we titled this podcast like we titled it that because we just yeah we have no idea what's happening um and then just trying to embrace the not we don't knowing know what's
0: going on yeah
1: and being okay with the fact that like we're gonna show up and not always say stuff that we stand by or not that we don't believe in, but that we're still working through it on air right like that's in our intro now yeah
2: well, and, and that positioning is different when it's an explicit acknowledged vulnerability <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that we are here together making it up. And that's yeah. different than you yeah, getting exactly. on stage. And it's
1: like the antithesis to like TED Talks, right? Where like in seven minutes, I'm going to answer all of your life's problems. I'm going to give you the key to well-being. Is there anything else you wanted to add or Eugene, you, you have any more thoughts.
0: I'm wondering how much of this process and this mindset around going to other places to solve their problems is potentially connected to social media and the ability to signal to others that you're doing good. Right. And if this, you know, to on the one side, I mentioned that, Hey, there's a potential that this might be something that happens less maybe in a year's time. But maybe the reality is that as we enter these phases where social currency needs to evolve away from, let's say, material goods, this might actually be more impactful. You know, I think you've seen it in the past where you have, good example, celebrity goes to um, a part of Africa and takes photos with impoverished children. And that itself is like a PR opportunity. And these will continue to be In some ways, PR opportunities, because I think we've we've kind of identified that the underlying reason lacks purity. But because we need to create social currency and we recognize that certain things might not have the same weight as they did in the past, this might actually increase.
1: You mean the social currency or the act activity like we're going to see more of this.
0: We're going to see more of this performative elements of helping going across the world to help other people's problems or solve other people's problems
2: i i do think that there is an element of the social that has made probably has increased the performance of this kind of solutionism and i mean i think we saw it stateside with a lot of the black lives matter protests where you'd see you know an influencer or someone walking out into the street taking a photo of being at the protest and then you know walking away and they weren't there to march they they i I don't i can't speak to why they were there but what we observed was they showed up took a picture and left and i would guess that that picture is for an instagram
1: post but then i guess i also Wonder so I'm also thinking about how in the last like half a year we've seen a lot of people on social media share donation receipts like to different organizations. But actually for that, I feel like this is one of those questions about like net positive. Right. Like if people are donating money and by posting, they then encourage more notation, more donations. I'm not upset that they're using it as social currency. Not that anyone asking is asking me if I'm upset but at least in terms of like activism or like trying to change something, then I don't think of that as like reductive seduction, like Martin writes about. Like it's much much more much dangerous to travel to a country you know nothing about and then try to like, you know, solve the problem there versus like giving a donation or even I would argue like showing presence at a protest. Like that that social currency actually can help movements.
0: So it's okay to use... That process to shame and or make people feel inadequate to enact change.
1: I mean, I don't like the word shame that you use there, but.
0: But you're trying to create a level of like inadequacy with somebody, right?
1: Or accountability.
0: Inadequacy, accountability. Sure. You know, yours a little bit more politically correct, but honestly, there is an element of like, hey, trying to make someone feel inadequate for their inaction.
1: But at the root, the root action can't be causing yeah. a greater problem.
0: Because we, I mean, that's the thing too. I feel that when I donate money, I almost, it's definitely not in my personality to go and share that I've donated money. But it's, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not its not really about me, right? It's about how do I improve the underlying movement's momentum. Yeah, and I, th- I
2: think, you know, sort of along the lines of that vulnerability bit, In doing that, you could argue that you're acknowledging that your time could be better spent doing something else to create capital, which then you can give to these organizations which can leverage that capital better. Like You flying to a country to do something is, is expensive and probably less directly impactful than you just giving money to an organization that already has an efficient system to make change. Per signaling that you've given money to that organization, different level of analysis, but the, the sort of baseline action. Yeah. I think we would agree is probably better.
1: You feel good about where that ended up?
2: Yeah, that was, I was a lot longer than I expected actually.
1: Okay. Let's go to my subject. For this week we kicked eugene out of subject picking for this special guest
0: i am happy to pass over the reins this week
2: eugene said he he was behind (laughs) in Fortnite and hadn't used up the game pass that alex had bought him so he was it's like i got stuff to do i got teenagers to hang out with we're good pretty much
1: okay so on the subject of giving that actually is part of the reason i Chose my subject this week. It's from an article published in The Creative Independent, which is a small editorial platform that's funded by Kickstarter. So, just being transparent, because Kickstarter is also mentioned in the article, but I think it's relevant. This is written by Sienna Orestaglio, who runs Void Academy, an organization that helps artists raise support for their work through crowdfunding websites and newsletters and the article is actually this really practical guide directed to artists about how to raise funds to support themselves right now in this moment because we know a lot of artists have lost means of their regular means of supporting themselves such as gigs or pop-up shops etc and it goes through like part by part determining whether you need help and then how to ask for that help and how to lead that into long-term support So I think that if you are listening to this and you are a independent artist and creator, the entire article has like really specific instructions as well that I think are helpful. And we won't cover all of them, but I'm just going to give like a little bit of an outline of what she says. It starts with part one is about asking, determining, first of all, whether you as an artist should be asking for support right now in the bigger picture of being part of a creative community. And I really appreciated her opening with this. You know, and she says, like, ask yourself these three questions first. And it's like a way to be honest that you do need help or be honest and see that actually there are other people who need more help than myself right now. And then she goes into determining what platform to use, depending on what types of funds you want to raise. So if you want something quick or you want something that's for a specific project, such as a Kickstarter project, or if you're invested in building long-term support. And then we get to the part that I found the most interesting and that I wanted to talk about with the two of you. It's called Moving Through Fears Around Asking. And she talks about the nervousness people tend to naturally feel about asking for money and asking for support. And I'm just gonna quote exactly what is written here because I think it's quite good. She writes, Notice how you feel when you give. The next time you give something to someone, notice how you feel. Remind yourself that it feels good to give. Giving builds community, strengthens relationships, and makes people feel impactful. These are things that all of us need in abundance right now. Before running a campaign, I always recommend that artists find an artist campaign to give money to, even simply at the $1 level. And pay attention to what it feels like to become a patron of the arts. So I think I'll just like pause here for a second and ask the two of you if in the last six months, I I personally know that the two of you have donated to different causes. Now, how did it feel for you when you gave or did you notice anything about that?
0: This is personal, right? I didn't feel any type of way because I think there's still a lack of transparency. And it's not that I think there's any sort of malicious intent, but I I really believe that when you're donating money right now, this is this is like not not a catch-all, right? But just in the experiences and where I, I donated, they were causes mm-hmm. I believed in, but I didn't know necessarily what were the exact things they're trying to solve, right? And I think that would have helped me a little bit because it it would have helped me understand that I was making a difference towards X, Y, Z. But in many ways, I think you you donate. And after donating, you kind of, you know, you forget about it for a little bit. I would, I would say that maybe there is. Um, when I donated to Black Lives Matter, they do give me updates, like email updates. But if I'm gonna be very honest, I don't really click into the newsletters, right? Because it's more like, I don't know why, but I just, I, I'll just be honest. Like I think there maybe was a certain like societal and cultural pressure to donate if you had the means to donate. And I don't think that's bad, right? But it's more that it didn't, when I started to like analyze it, I didn't feel like, oh, like super warm, like inside. It was just like, hey, it's what you should do if you have the ability to support others. And let's just leave it at that. It doesn't need to be a personal thing. I don't need to go and, you know, showcase to the rest of the world that I'm doing this. It's just what I felt was, I would say
1: that, I mean, you're not a very warm and fuzzy person anyway, but I would say that making that donation made you feel like you just said was something that you should do so that you were in, I guess, harmony with yourself in terms of like your to-do list of things that like checklist things I need to get done.
2: I like that you openly call out Eugene for not being warm and fuzzy person. As he sits there, RBFing us from his chair.
1: <laughs> Beza, you have to understand that that's just his default face, and it's not because of either of us.
2: I think I agree with part of that. I mean, I can maybe speak to like the studio donated to Unexpected Connections, and I think that was like a very easy decision because I both believe in what make it is doing and i had a loose idea of where that money was going to those organizations and i think it it was it felt good in that i had the ability to do it and i wanted to you know direct money towards those organizations i laughed when you asked that question because i didn't realize that i was going to be blown up on the website to the degree that I, it was wonderful <laughs> and kind, but I sort of was scrolling with Sari and I was like, Oh, I want to see like who all sponsored. And I just see, you know, mm. my name taking up 600 pixels on, <laughs> on site. I was like, this is very kind of them. like tagged on Instagram. Like, this is great. Um, it,
1: it's actually in, it's actually in the, the deck that we sent to sponsors. So we just fulfilled our, you know, what we said we would provide. But I think something I would maybe something that's different from my experience with giving versus the two of you is that I have given to individuals, which is what I think this article is more about and i i I would say if the two of you do find yourselves doing that, it might feel different because i, I I'm not trying to say like oh i I don't know, it's not like I feel this really like virtuous feeling, but I think. I have this more concrete idea that I'm very much helping someone who needs it right now. And yeah, go ahead.
2: There's a a woman who I'm lucky to work with at Slack named Christy Tillman, and she had posted on Twitter, and I think actually it it went pretty big, but um, basically like people underestimate the impact of making a significant contribution like a, a deep commitment to like one or two people and just realizing what sort of changing the trajectory of their life can do. Um, and I think I'm, I'm super fortunate that my parents modeled that for me and that both like we had strangers and relatives live with us or be supported for various points in my life. And that kind of like deep or, or like sort of sustained gift was Encouraged, I think in the same way that Eugene talks about. And so I've, I've had friends or people in my life where I've been fortunate to pay it forward. Um, and it, it, do, it does feel
0: you, different. You know what I was thinking is that, and it relates back to the first topic, I would probably feel more excited about my contribution if I could somehow influence, and influence could be perceived in many ways, but it's like, could I influence the way that money is used. But then it also falls back to the first topic where like, why am I actually of the belief that I can do a better job than what they're they're doing? And maybe it's a confidence. Maybe it's just like, I think I have a perspective I can add and contribute, but there's certain things that I, so when I was younger, you know, all my friends would go to the casino and everyone would go and and play and and gamble for fun. Right. And as I got older, I, I just really didn't have any interest because there was so little ability to affect the outcome. There are, there are skill games. Yes. But for the most part, like I just couldn't get behind it anymore. And I almost, I don't know if it's confidence or just wanting the best work done, but you know, that's the thing uh, with even investing in like investing in a company. If you're investing in a charity, you're, Hope is that they do the right thing, but you also don't really know. You also don't go through the obviously the the amount of money you're putting in is a lot less. You're putting in a fraction of what it you would do to you know invest in a company in a stock or not. So that part is somewhat interesting to me because trying to come to terms with you. You could even be straight up. It's like maybe there's an ego perspective. Like I think I can do a better job, right? Um, and yeah, I, think I mean that's
1: good self interrogation, but also I think it's like. There are different personalities of givers, right? And you're, yeah. you want to be more actively involved beyond a dollar contribution. But a lot of people think that a dollar contribution is a good way, is a sufficient way to give, like satisfies that desire. I also wanted to read the second paragraph because like, so the first paragraph that I just read was about yeah. giving. And then the second one is really about like, the the mindset of asking. And she writes, reframe asking as giving the opportunity to give, keeping in mind the above. It becomes possible to reframe asking as giving the opportunity for people in your community to help you. So many people feel helpless right now and giving small amounts to artists they care about is something they can do to make an impact. Remember that people won't give if they don't want to or are unable to. And those who do give get to experience all the positive feelings that come along with doing so. I actually think this is really related to conversations Eugene and I had over half a year ago about moving to Patreon and being increasingly honest about Macon and Adam Studios, that financial relationship and where Macon is in terms of finances and our business model. Because if people don't know that we need help, then they can't give help. We've just cut off even them considering the possibility.
2: I think a lot of people believe that donating money is an impersonal act. And I actually think that giving money is very personal because it's very easy to understand what that gift is. Like if I'm giving you money, you know that I have a choice to feed myself, to go somewhere, to do something with it. And instead I'm choosing to give it to you. And it's, it has like a, a understood mechanism where I think donating time or, or other things like donating stuff to like a Goodwill in the States, like it has a different relationship because donating stuff to Goodwill is, is usually freeing your apartment or your home up for more stuff or a different, like, a different feeling in the house. Giving you money is like, mm-hmm. I could have used this on a whole bunch of other things and I'm making an explicit choice that you can use it better or that I want you to have it for a specific reason. And I think that's the feeling like that connection of like, I'm invested in you and I'm, I'm giving this to you because you're going to make a decision about it or I want your art or I want whatever it is that you're, yeah. you're adding to the world. And if this is going to help you get there, then like, here's my personal you know, belief and love for you in this yeah. way. And
1: I think about how, you know, what Eugene just said about his nature of giving, that translates into how we perceive receiving money from Macon members because of how strongly we want to make people actual stakeholders uh, in, in concrete ways. I, I
2: was just gonna say, like, it, it's, it's been interesting in, the, in, in thinking about, you know, even how to ask for help. You know, I think people's relationships with money are highly varied, but in, in that, you know, thinking about what, what the <laughs> yeah. sustainable model is for Macon, like, in some ways you're asking for, like, you're sort of saying, if you love make it, prove it, like in a a sort of, you know, cynical way. But I think it's also saying, like, you know, there there are real costs to us doing this and you're not asking for people to give a hundred dollars a month so that you're eating, you know, Michelin star dinners or whatever. You're just saying, like, look, we we provide something that we think is a value and we want you to help keep that going because it's valuable to you. That doesn't seem like a hard It doesn't seem like a bad ask, right? Like, and
1: no, 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 no. And I mean, I don't know if Eugene wants to jump in, but if he doesn't and actually that leads perfectly into the next half of this article, because then she goes on about how someone should ask for support. And this is really great because it's basically all about communication skills, about communicating the context of the ask, how it's personal to you. And what incentives you offer, you know, what value you're giving in exchange for the help that they provide. And I mean, it's a good reminder for us as an organization, but I just thought that one of the reasons I picked this is because I think if you're an individual creator, some of these questions are things that you might not ask yourself regularly. And I think Mm -hmm. by asking people for help, you also give yourself like this sort of regular check-in. You know what is the context of my ask? You know what? Why is this personal and valuable to them? And I sh- I should probably be doing that, even if yeah. even if I'm not asking people for help anyway.
0: One thing in the making world is that, and it's it's for anyone that has some sort of subscription and or patronage model. Is like, what's the right tiering? How much should it cost? And as we go through it, it's like. You know, we right now we have a $2 tier that was never part of the original plan. It's just that based off of the circumstances that we see around us right now, it makes perfect sense for us to find a way to connect community. And if anything, $2 is not inconsequential, but you need massive scale for it to be consequential, you know? So in reality, it's just a mechanism for you to ensure that quality is maintained. It's like creating a barrier that people need to overcome. Um, and it could be even just a psychological one of opening your your wallet, right? So I, I, that's something that I find interesting is that allowing people to contribute as they see fit and not necessarily pigeonholing them uh, is something to consider. But also we have a bit of a luxury where making as it stands right now, could not make any money this month, next month, the month after, and we wouldn't pack up and and shut things down, right? But we also made concessions and we made some sacrifice to allow that to happen. And, like, you know, people like yourself, you know, myself that don't really get paid to do this, we do it because we believe there's some sort of social good that is at the, at the sort of onset, not onset, but it, it's something that you see as a byproduct.
2: Yeah, I do. When I was reading this, one of the things that I think is related to that is I wonder how much creatives, using the term broadly are aware of why and how people participate and consume what they create. And I wonder how much of the struggle in asking for help is being able to actually speak in a, in a way that resonates with the audience about like knowing what people get out of it. And I I imagine that gets easier over time, but, I bet there's a pretty big gap for a lot of folks, especially early on, between what they think people are getting out of their creative work and what is actually coming from it. And some of the struggle is like just not being able to speak to that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that difference between and also bringing in like what you see value in, you know, like this is what I get value from in what I do versus what I think people get value from and what they actually get value from and actually that's where your role comes in as the research expert but not every independent creator is lucky enough um, to have you in their corner no i think that's so true and it's i guess for solo artists who are doing this on their own because so many are you know running gofundmes and kickstarters and patreons it's Having to spend a lot of time just talking to supporters and putting putting in effort in those conversations, and I think the reality is that it's mostly like deep conversations with individuals rather than like mass surveys. You know, like our relationship with you. You know, like we have this very in depth relationship with how you perceive Macon and what you get from it, and we get a lot of value from that, even if it's not surveying like three hundred people who read Macon.
2: Yeah, and I, I imagine it's, it's also different. I mean, I think there's even, even great folks in the making community that, that are at different ends of the spectrum here where they have sort of a professional output of their creativity. I'm an illustrator and I do illustrations for The New Yorker. And a byproduct of that is I am putting out creative work for free for the community or sharing that where I never actually was, was getting paid by the community. And so, that I think is probably the place where people struggle the most versus folks who are historically creating work for patrons. Like, oh, I may, you know, I think about Craig Mott, like he's writing these books to be sold to people. He's not writing a book for like Random House and then, you know, oh, by the way, you can go to Random House and buy my book, right? Like he has an audience in mind and he has that sort of direct relationship, which I think is different than like a professional relationship and just a big blast radius of your creative work I had an interesting question I didn't realize that the creative independent was from Kickstarter but one of the things I was interested in very tactically as people are navigating this especially in the making community is some of these platforms have pretty wild fees associated with them and like I appreciated sort of the like, okay, there are these different models. There is GoFundMe for this and Kickstarter for that and maybe Patreon for that. But I also wonder like, I I obviously have a different sort of economic model for my own work, but I just wonder like, are these really the best suggestions for folks in this situation, given that they're paying, you know, five, 10, 15% in platform fees. That is
1: a good question, but it's so related to That long conversation we had about Toby Shoren's piece in terms of tools, because if you are an independent artist and you're putting all of your time into things like we said, like conversations, making incentives, then I don't think you have the time to make something custom on your own. And it's possible that there are like independent versions of Kickstarter or smaller versions of Kickstarter that I don't know about. But also, sometimes you pay that fee for the convenience and the common knowledge of these, right? Well, though the writer does say you can just use your Venmo. You can fundraise using social media platforms and ask people to give you money via Venmo. So, but it's, it's a good challenge, right? But I don't think the challenge is so much to the author as it is to like what platforms exist out there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. it was much more of, as yeah. y'all thought about, you know, the right, like, what makes sense for making and going through yeah. that model, like picking Patreon, um, just more a genuine curiosity of like what else is out there and, and how much are people giving I, up?
1: I mean, I always wish there were more smaller platforms out there, but that just is not the landscape.
0: Most recently, I've been on the receiving end of decisions made during moments of crisis, not, not like personal problems, but just like being part of certain decisions, whether it's on a, like, a political level in Hong Kong, that happened because of certain crises or challenges, right? My question is, is there anything on the bright side or and or things that creatives can prepare for so that they can weather a storm like what's happening right now? Or is it so unprecedented that nothing would have prepared them for this? And I mean this primarily from a financial perspective, because a lot of this is about financial support.
1: I think it's having to build up long term community and support and whether that's in the form of patrons who regularly give you money and, or that you have like a database of people that you can you know, be in contact with or even just clients that you maintain regular communication with regardless of whether you're in a crisis or not basically maintenance, you have to always maintain this network of people around you. And that's, that's how you develop like an armor, essentially, like not knowing what comes up.
2: Yeah, I feel, I feel like having this is much easier said than done. So I'll, I'll caveat it. But I think having diverse revenue streams and, and sort of diverse outputs that have different sort of cadences or financial models associated with them, I think is, is really the way to prepare for, for that. I mean, I, I don't actually think it's that different for, for like me where I think about having a client on retainer, which gives me a certain sort of, you know, within a deviation or so like an expected earning. And then I can also have a workshop here or a consulting engagement that short term. And like, there are different levers to pull. I do think that a lot of what's going on in the world yeah, is, of course, is yeah. close to unprecedented, if not totally unprecedented. Um, but I think that one of the things that a lot of people underestimate is like how consistent mm. their reality will be. And I think most people are, are not willing to acknowledge just the chaos that exists around us. You know, going, going back to, to the earlier piece, like, we, In the same way that we like under, we overestimate yeah. what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years, Like, you overestimate the complexity of the things around you and you underestimate the complexity of things that are far away. And I think that's true in, in how we think about the world. Like, oh, I sort of yeah. understand what's coming in the future. This should be fine. Chaos hits and you're like.
0: <sighs> I am curious as to whether people will go through this cycle and wonder what they could have done better or in times of prosperity uh i for me personally this is this is something that regardless of what's happened like i was in many ways i was in many ways prepared for some sort of economic downturn just not to this level you know i didn't expect it to be in many ways virus induced so you know as of may june of 2019 i was already sort of like looking very hard at how money was to be spent both from a business perspective how to set up a business, personal expenses. And the one thing that I I wish, you know, we could look back in five, 10 years, creatives and artists maybe lose the stigma of being financially illiterate.
2: Yeah, that's a big one. I think in the States, one of the things talking to people from Hong Kong and Canada, this isn't fair, but like the in the States, we need to divorce healthcare from employment tomorrow.
1: Like it, yesterday. It is just yesterday. Unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, yesterday.
2: Like, like, like the fact that your ability to get access to actual healthcare is tied to a job is just irresponsible on so many levels. And it it perpetuates so many of these problems that we're talking about. And so I think that, you know, it's not just like the financial literacy, I think, is is a huge one, but I think that the the structures that we're operating in. Are doing us no favors right oh, now. Oh yeah,
1: not at all. I mean, two things that come to mind. One is it doesn't even matter if you're a creative or not. I think financial literacy as an adult is like baseline to. And and I know that societally, like maybe people have become. I don't know. It's not part of like what we're trained to do, but it should be. And then the second thought. It was a bit of a departure, but did the two of you read the really long Atlantic article that Ed Yong wrote? What was it about? Oh, my goodness. It's so good. Um, Based off, I mean, a little I I worry about like Echo Chamber because I love both Ed Yong and I I read the Atlantic quite frequently. Um, But at the same time, I do think there's like a lot of facts in, in this article. It's called... How the pandemic defeated America. It was the cover story of the most recent issue. And it kind of goes like through the last four months, like at every stage when something could have been different. But really, the section that hits the hardest is what Beza just said about like the pandemic exposing existing problems with the system and inequities. And just especially about the healthcare system, it just like roasts it to the ground. Yeah. yeah that's great
2: yeah i mean i i think that the yeah you know, i love a lot of things about y'all and about making i think that that one of the things that's been f- enjoyable and i appreciate over the past few months is just this like drawn out conversation we've had about community and groups i think it started with some of the conversation around the death of the nuclear family i think there's been other things we've talked about toby's piece in the last episode I mean, I, I think that what we're coming to grips with is that at the small scale, we are very fragile and that our strength comes from these groups that we're a part of. And unfortunately, at the large scale, many of us don't have, like, I should put my own, I'm, I'm quite privileged, but in the United States, structurally, we are actually like, not very well taken care of. And so the resiliency that's going to come for creatives or for, for any of us is going to come from these you know, super family units that we're building, it's gonna come from us being connected and us being able to support each other and be patrons and whatever, because structurally, we're not gonna have it. And independently, some of us are losing it. And I think that like that, you know, community means a lot of things that are, are good and bad, but I think that like group nature of us together being stronger than us individually, you know, together, I think is, is something that we will see to continue to play yeah,
0: out. I had a conversation with Sharice you know, yesterday. And there's one thing that comes from having a peer group is that they help remove or reduce your blind spots and, or give you confidence. You know, they're, they're kind of the support network in a sense that it goes beyond just like making you feel better. It's actually empowering you to do new things. Like I hope Sharice doesn't mind, but you know, no, go ahead. When Sharice and I first connected professionally, she was a graphic designer, but through ongoing talks, discussions, getting to know each other more beyond the confines of her designing like stuff at Hypebeast. I was like, oh man, she has a great point of view, super articulate, has the ability to write. So why not try her hand at you know editorial? And it's been probably one of the most interesting changes and it's always nice to see your friends develop and grow. And sometimes that's what the peer group allows you to do is that they give you the confidence and help you pull out the essence or the the unseen talents or maybe the they sometimes go in there and they're able to extract things that could be presented more uh forward facing. Yeah well I mean
1: it's connected to what Bezad said earlier about like what you personally think is your value and what other people see is your value. And I mean Eugene's not capable of blushing, but it's really thanks to him like in the late 2017, early 2018 giving me an opportunity to work on editorial for Macon you know even earlier than that asking me to do making it up and it's really significantly changed the trajectory of my career and also like beyond that in terms of actual finances like where I see value in myself and what confidence I have in what I'm doing and that sounds very mushy but I guess related to this conversation it's like well I want everyone to have that to be able to be that for each other and Beyond that, you know, Eugene has given me actual financial opportunities. So if, like you're saying, we have to do that for each other when the bigger systems fail us.
2: I mean, I, I wish we had hours more to talk about this. I, I recently joined Tom Critchlow's Discord for like, I guess, independent consultants. And a conversation that we were having was about sort of this, this group nature of like banding together with other people to work on projects. And we were talking about the, the like joys of bringing in people who have different strengths because they add value and, and change how you see your own work and, and you get to learn from them. And he ended up writing about it, uh, I think today, in this piece called alumni, Generating an Alumni Network for Indies. And he, he like specifically calls out sort of that math of like, you know, a lot of people band together with, you know, we'll we'll say other creatives who are similar to them, but then they're just competing. Whereas let's imagine, you know, you're a consultant, a strategy consultant, and you band together with a writer. Like if you have 10 clients and they have two, now you actually have crossover and like that becomes more fruitful for both of you. And I think that like that sort of, community of seeing potential in each other and and making each other better is another vehicle that we will hopefully utilize to, you know, weather these kinds of storms or or at least be more resilient to them. Because you see things in Charisse Teresa, Charisse doesn't see. And so you can open doors for her and vice versa. And like that will perpetuate itself, hopefully.
1: I mean, we definitely could go on, but also we
2: probably shouldn't. Yeah, Eugene's got four nights of life.
1: It's like 12 in the afternoon. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
0: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash macon.
1: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charis at macon.com. C-H-A-R-I-S or eugene at eugene at com. E-U-G-E-N-E. Bezod would you want people to get in touch with you? And if so, how?
2: Sure, if you wanna get in touch, you can email me at the letter B at Yet another dot Studio.
1: Cool, we love hearing from you, including Bezod. He would love to hear from you too.
2: I'm Bezod I'm Eugene.
1: I'm Sharice. And
2: this is Making It Up.